and ask us to take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah 52 this morning. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text. We have come to one of the most famous passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, and I have been looking forward to this for some time. And really, all we're going to have time to do really this morning is just to introduce it. And I'd like to slow down and kind of take our time to go through this text. This is the one time, maybe in my whole preaching time here, where we'll just go, you know, verse by verse right through this text. So um, let's look together at this most beautiful passage, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a passage. This is the fourth and final climactic servant passage called one of the servant songs of the prophecy of Isaiah. There are four of these, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and now chapter 53 primarily, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13. These great prophecies of the servant of the Lord. A servant, of course, is someone whose whole purpose it is to do the will of what? Of the person who sent him, his master, one who's in charge of him. His whole purpose in life is to do the will of his master. And, of course, there were some cases where a servant would have been a slave. There were other cases where a servant was hired to serve, but success was measured on whether that servant actually accomplished the master's purposes. The term is used throughout the book of Isaiah in several ways. We first read of God calling someone his servant back in Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 3 when the Lord used it of the prophet Isaiah, my servant, to do my work of preaching and prophesy. However, in spite of Isaiah's relatively faithful service, the Lord would actually tell him back in chapter 6, if you remember from way back at the beginning of our study, God told Isaiah that in spite of his labors, he would be unable to accomplish what God, um, the salvation that God would bring about in his people. Isaiah would be unable to bring about that change, that, that deliverance of God's people from his wrath. In fact, the people would be deaf to Isaiah's message. They would be hard and blind to what God was doing and hardened in hearts um, to not perceive any of that. And and Isaiah said, well, how long, Lord, will I minister ineffectively? And the Lord said, this will last your entire ministry, your entire calling, until the nation is carried away into captivity. They're going to be under the judgment of God because they will not listen. So in spite of what a, a faithful servant Isaiah was in so many ways, relatively compared to other servants of the Lord, even yet he would not be able to accomplish the mission of salvation for the people of God. And of course, the same was true about other people who were referred to as the servants of the Lord throughout this book. That term is used in chapter 22, verse 20 of Eliakim. You remember that man? He was a uh, an official in Judah during the time of the Assyrian invasion, and in fact was used of the Lord during that period. But remember that in spite of 
is relative faithfulness. The Lord said, Eliakim is going to be like a peg pounded into the wall, and the whole weight of the nation is going to hang on him, but in the end, he's going to be cut down and the whole thing's going to fall. Even this servant was unable to accomplish the salvation of the people of God. And that term is used again, the term servant in chapter 37, verse 35, of King David. King David, of course, was long before Isaiah's time, and David was a great servant of the Lord in many ways. Uh, He was a man after God's own heart, and yet when you look at the life of David, you see that he was not that faithful servant that God would raise up to build the house of God. David was a tainted man. So the Lord said to him, you, David, will not build this house for my people where I will dwell with them forever. Over and over again, the Lord raised up servants, men who who stood and, and served him in some ways, big and small, and yet not one of them was able to ultimately accomplish uh, the deliverance of God's people from his own justice and his own wrath. And that story just continues all throughout the history of God's people. But in the second half of this book, we have been introduced again and again in all of these four passages. We've been introduced to this unnamed servant of the Lord who will be unlike any other servant of the Lord who has ever come before. And the greatest difference about this servant would be that he would be entirely successful in accomplishing the purpose of God in the salvation of his people. That is what stands out about that servant of Jehovah. He will be successful. Salvation will be secured. Deliverance from the wrath of God will be obtained by the work of this servant. That's the theme of this final servant song. And I want to point that out to you. Let's make sure that we're on this page, that uh, the same page here, that we're really seeing what the scripture is saying. So let me take you to verse 13 of chapter 52. And notice the way this whole song starts. This whole passage begins. You look at the end of verse, excuse me, at the beginning of verse 13. Notice the words. Behold, the Lord says, my servant shall act wisely. If you have an ESV, that's the way it's translated, isn't it? My servant will do what? He will act wisely. So you think about the wisdom of Isaiah, the wisdom of David, the wisdom of Eliakim, all good men, but this one will surpass them all in terms of his wise work the skill with which he does the work of God that will surely bring about success. In fact, if you have an ESV, notice that by the word act wisely, which is what the translation of one Hebrew word, there's actually a little, a little footnote. And there's another way to translate it. And that is, my servant shall, what? Shall prosper. 
And if you have a New American Standard, that's exactly the translation that's in the text there. And they're actually both good translations. Neither one is really, in a sense, better than the other. The, the word has the both aspects of meaning embedded in it. In other words, we're talking about someone who would be so skilled and so wise and so faithful in the way that he acts that success will be secure, that he will surely bring about what God intended him to bring about. I mean, you think about the best servants of the Lord that were ever unfolded in the pages of Scripture besides this one, and every one of them comes up short in terms of their wisdom to really do everything that they needed to do, ought to have done, were called to do even, to bring about the purposes that God intended. This servant, this servant is someone who will act so prudently, so wisely, that he will accomplish God's purpose in salvation. And notice that theme is going to continue throughout this whole passage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. What stands out to us generally is the suffering, but here notice the theme of the success of the servant. Look at verse 10 in chapter 53. The end of that verse, and the will of the Lord shall what? Shall prosper in his hand. It will be fully accomplished, that purpose of God to save. It will prosper under the work of this servant. And if you look at the very next verse, verse 11, that verse says that the servant's knowledge will cause the work to prosper and he will be satisfied with what he accomplishes. He will be satisfied. Can anybody say, looking back on your last, the last week of your life, and the way that you live for God, can any of us say, I am 100% completely satisfied that everything I did was exactly what I should have done, to the extent I should have done it. But here is the servant of the Lord who will be satisfied in terms of accomplishing what God has given him to accomplish. And as a result, look in chapter 52, uh, 53, verse 12, as a result of his faithful working to accomplish the work of God in salvation. The Lord says about him, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You know the old phrase, to the victor go the spoils. He's victorious. That's the point. He will be victorious. He will accomplish the deliverance of God's people as he goes to war against sin and Satan and death and hell. So from the very beginning to the very end, this song highlights the success of the servant of the Lord in bringing about the deliverance of God's people. That is the great theme. And of course, at the same time, it's very clear to us as we've read this that the servant is going to experience incredible suffering, right? Just some of the phrases that just just dominate this text. His appearance was marred. His facial appearance marred, as if you couldn't even tell he's a man. He had no form or majesty. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, right? He was stricken by God. What does the text say? He was afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, oppressed, and led to the slaughter. It's very apparent. 
that this servant is going to face great suffering. And nevertheless, in spite of all that the suffering that he will face, he will be successful in bringing about God's purpose of salvation. In fact, you'd have to say, it's not, it's not just that he's successful in spite of the suffering. I'm actually going to show you that he is successful because of his suffering. Notice the very first word. Look at verse 12. The very first word of verse 12. After describing all of the suffering of the servant, the Lord says, what's the first word? Therefore. Therefore. Because of all that he has suffered, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong. His victory was actually the result and the reward of his suffering. His suffering was, how would you say it, meritorious. It brought about a reward. His merit benefited his people. And in the end, he shares the spoils of his victory with those who belong to him. He, his suffering brought us peace. So, in these chapters, we have unfolded this amazing picture of the servant of the Lord. In chapter 42, he is a servant who is sanctified, set apart, called by God, empowered by God uniquely. In chapter 49, he is a saving servant, bringing God's salvation to the end of the earth, chapter 49 says. In chapter 50, he's the submissive servant, where Israel is hard-hearted and rebellious against God. The servant of the Lord will be tender, will be open. He will give himself to do God's will with every part of his body. He came to do God's will. And here in this chapter, he is both the suffering and the successful servant. That is the twin themes of this passage. He is the suffering and successful servant. Now, let me show you um, just how this passage is structured and Lord willing, We'll be looking at it for the next few weeks, but I want to put it in front of us so we it just makes it more clear as we're moving through it. Um, there are two important structural devices in the way this passage unfolds. Um, on the one hand, you can trace it by the movement um, between different speakers, okay? So, for example, let me show you, beginning in verse chapter 52, verse 13, who is talking? The person is saying, behold my servant. So this is God, right? So verses 13, 14, and 15, this is God speaking. But then when you come to chapter 53, verse 1, there's a different voice speaking. Another set of voices, really, who begin this way. Who has believed our report? Or who has believed what he has heard from us? And it's not the Lord speaking, because they're speaking about the Lord in the third person, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So there's a group of people 
who are speaking about the Lord now, beginning in chapter 53, verse 1. Who are these people? Who are these voices? Well, they're obviously voices who are bearing witness about the gospel. Because right here in the very first verse, they're asking, who's believed what we're witnessing? Who's believing our report? So these are witnesses for the Lord. These are those people who are spoken of back in chapter 52, verse 7, when it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news, right? So here is a host of people who are bearing witness and and looking for those who would believe their witness. But notice also the people who are speaking in chapter 53 are people who formerly did not believe. They, they look at this, the, the, the Lord, um, and at least in, 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 with regard to them corporately, they said, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. We believed, at one time we believed, that he was getting from God exactly what he deserved. He was being smitten by God because he was a liar, a pretend Messiah, an imposter, someone who was a false prophet. And God gave him the judgment that he rightfully did. These are people who used to think that way, but now they've come to think very differently about this servant of the Lord. And now they're bearing witness about this servant and the true reality behind what it is that happened to him. And that voice, those voices are uh, dominating most of chapter 53 all the way down to verse 10. Okay, the first 10 verses. Now, beginning in verse 11, here's another change of voice. And once again, it is whose voice? Who is it in verse 11? It's God's, right? Because he's referring to my servant. And he says, I will divide to my servant a portion with the many. So this is God speaking. So there are basically three entities um, in this song. There's I, who is God. God is speaking in the first person, singular. There is we, beginning in chapter 53, verse 1. And that's these witnesses who have seen great unbelief and yet have now come to believe in this servant. And then there is, well, the servant. There is the servant of the Lord. Both of them, God on the one hand, at the beginning and the end, and the witnesses in the middle, all of them are speaking about this third person, that is the servant of Jehovah, right? So, that's one of the ways this is structured. Let me show you one more sort of progression or, or structural device in this passage. And that is, there's a movement in the whole uh, song from suffering to glory. There's a movement between from one to the other, from humiliation to exaltation. So, after the sort of introductory section in chapter 52, look at chapter 53, verse 1, verses 1 through 10 there, is clearly a description of the servant's suffering, right? It goes from the fact that he was rejected to the fact that he was oppressed and afflicted to the fact that he was put to death, led to the slaughter, and finally that he was buried. I mean, you have this great descent 
right? He starts out, the servant will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up. And then you just have this gradual descent of rejection and, and uh, oppression and, and uh, death and burial. And now, in the end, it is said that he was crushed by the Lord himself. And I want to tell you, listen, if God himself is against you, if he himself is laying his stripes on you, that is, that is the ultimate in, in being brought low and being humble. So that's, that's the first half of this chapter. But then the turning point really comes in the middle of a verse. And I hate that, um, but you know the verses are just here to help us find our place, right? But if you look in the middle of verse 10, I think that is the turning point in this song. Because after uh, you have all of this going all the way down to his death and being crushed by the Lord himself, in the middle of verse 10, it says, Now, when that happens, once that takes place, he's, he's brought from the heights all the way down to the depths, buried in the depths of the earth, crushed under the foot of God, when he gets there, when his soul makes an offering for guilt in that way, he shall, what? He's going to see his offspring. Now remember, he's dead. He's in the grave. But he's going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you have a whole turning point here in the middle of verse 10 from this descent now to this great ascent from this humiliation now on this path of exaltation that's going to end with prospering in bringing the purpose of God for salvation to the ends of the earth. A, this is a, a wonderful uh, uh, passage, and uh, I trust that the Lord will open it up to us. Now, you know that this passage is universally recognized as one of the most foundational passages in the entirety of God's Word for understanding the Bible's core message. I can't say it any, uh, you know, make any more, uh, give any more importance to this passage than to say that. This is one of the most foundational passages to really understanding the core message of the entirety of the Bible, and we've come to it in the providence of God. And of course, the identity of this servant is probably the most important point of interpretation in this most important point, in this most important passage. Who is the servant of the Lord? In fact, it's not only the most important point of interpretation in this chapter, it's the most important question that you'll ever answer in the course of, the, of your entire life. Who you think this refers to is the question on which hangs your whole eternity. Who you look to to deliver you from the wrath of God to bring you salvation is going to make every bit of difference in the whole course of your life. And when you stand before the judgment of God in the course of your eternity, this passage is so important. It's important that we understand who is this servant of the Lord. And of course, it's no surprise to you 
that Christians have identified this servant as the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and they acknowledge him as their Messiah and Lord. But of course, that identity is not uncontested. Modern Jewish explanations almost all follow the lead of a famous Jewish scholar from the Middle Ages. This is modern interpretation, really largely shaped. He was a French rabbi, Lomo ben Yitzhak. He's better known just by the acronym or the name Rashi, R-A-S-H-I. Rashi is well known for writing the most definitive Jewish commentaries on the Torah and uh, on the Talmud, which is the the Jewish oral traditions. In fact, uh, his commentary on the Talmud is 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 included. the The Talmud text is in the middle, and and the his commentary around it uh, in every print. I think every printed copy, most every printed copy of the Talmud that's been produced since the 1500s. So. Um, his interpretation, his take on this passage has become very influential in, uh, in a lot of the, um, the world of Judaism. And Rashi wrote, of course, during the, the Middle Ages, during the period of the Crusades, and uh, was really intent on undermining Christian claims about uh, the servant. And he famously took the position that the servant of the Lord here in this chapter is not any individual, but the nation itself as a whole. That the nation would go through great suffering, but that they would finally endure enough that they would be delivered and would, in fact, um, enjoy the blessing of God. And he said that it is the nation here that's in view, spoken of in the singular, but really viewed as as a whole. And that, of course, has been the predominant Jewish position ever since. But it was not always the case. Um, The Babylonian Talmud itself actually identifies the servant in at least one place that I could find with Israel's longed-for Messiah. This is the servant. He is none other than our Messiah. And so uh, some of the first written Targums take the same position. The Jewish, these sort of interpretational paraphrases of Scripture, identify the servant of the Lord as the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. A 6th century Midrash or commentary on the book of Ruth takes this same position and so does another one on the from the same era on the Pentateuch and a number of other texts from the Middle Ages. This was by far not the only interpretation within Judaism. In fact, Rashi's interpretation was contradicted by another very famous Jewish um, philosopher and rabbi by the name of Maimonides. And this man lived in the 1100s. And he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 2, and identifies it as a prophecy about the Messiah. He said, Rashi is is wrong in this. And so, of course, Christians have agreed with these assessments as, as far as they go. What we're talking about here is nothing less than Israel's Messiah. That's the servant that is to come. 
And we looked at this once before, but I want to put it in front of our eyes again, because this, I think, is a, a really important text in identifying this servant of the Lord. If you would, just hold your place here and turn back a couple of chapters, a couple of pages to chapter 49. In chapter 49, and verse number 3, and this is the servant of the Lord speaking in this verse, and he says, the Lord said to me, verse 3, Isaiah 49, 3, the Lord said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So there the servant is identified as Israel. But then look in the very next breath, look down in verse 5, he says, the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So now who is this? Because it can't be the whole nation, because it's someone who would bring the nation back to him. It's someone who would restore the nation. In other words, this servant is both identified with Israel in verse 3 and individually distinguishable from it in verse 5. So we have one singular person who embodies the whole, this single individual who stands as the representative head for all of Israel, and that is Israel's Messiah. Now, Christians have, from the very beginning, been united in their testimony that the servant is the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. Our faith is summed up in that great declaration of Peter, our brother, right? Who said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Do you declare that today? Do you confess that? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is our faith. And this is the universal testimony of the early church. And now, astonishingly, um, Bart Ehrman, who is a well-known modern-day critic of the Bible, um, he said this in one of his uh, a, a, a blog post uh, comment, there is no evidence that the earliest Christians used this passage to defend a view of the suffering Messiah. That's one of the most striking things, he says. Isaiah 53 is never quoted in the New Testament to prove that Jesus was the suffering Messiah. And I just stood back and said, well, that is just patently untrue. And I, we're going to look at it. Uh, or at least I'll, I'll point you to the references. We maybe won't take time to look. At, that was the New Testament. But listen, that guy is writing books that your kids may be made to read in their university religions class. So, beware, right? So, here's the truth. The New Testament writers continuously make use of Isaiah 53 to refer to the sufferings of the Messiah, who is universally identified as Jesus of Nazareth. For example, in John chapter 12, and again, I'm just going to give you these references. We won't take the time to go back to every one of these chap passages. But in John chapter 12, 
verse 1 of this text is quoted, Isaiah 53, as being fulfilled when the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Romans chapter 10, Paul does something similar, quoting chapter 1, quoting, excuse me, quoting verse 1 in connection with Israel's rejection of Christ. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus' ministry is seen to be a fulfillment of verse 4 in this text. First Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes, he quotes a number of this, uh, a section of this passage from verses 4 through 6, and then makes reference again to verse 9, and he sees it all as being fulfilled in Jesus' sufferings and death, and he really makes an important point there from that text. In Acts chapter 8, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Philip is recorded as having taught that verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53 refer to Jesus' arrest and his trial. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus himself says that his arrest as a common criminal was a fulfillment of verse 12 in this text, that he was numbered with the transgressors. And then, after quoting the text, he asserts, quote, this is written about me. Now, is that pretty clear? I think it's pretty clear. All right? Eight out of the 12 verses, eight out of the 12, I mean, that's a pretty high percentage of this text, are explicitly quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 12. Okay, and of course, all of it is alluded to in one way or another across the spectrum of the New Testament. Who is this servant? Who is the Messiah? That's the question this morning. It really is my only question. Who is this person? That is the most important question you'll ever answer. And consider what these messianic passages, these servant passages of the, uh, of the uh, prophecy of Isaiah predict about him. Let me just do that. Let me just survey. Okay, we've gone through chapter 42, 49, 50. And now we're, we've just read through 52, 53. Let's just quickly survey. What do they say about this servant who is distinct from God's people and yet stands as the representative of all of God's people? What does Isaiah himself say about this passage? And then I want to ask you to think about this. Now, who does that? Okay? We have read in chapter 42, I'm just going to go just survey it quickly, chapter 42, verse 1, that this person will be one in whom God delights, in whom he expresses that he delights in him. God, in the expression of delight over, the, over this servant, would send his Holy Spirit to come and rest upon him. In chapter 42, verse 2, he wouldn't, this servant would not raise his voice and fight against the powers that be. In chapter 42, verse 3, he would be gentle with the bruised and with those who are faint. In verse 4, he would display God's justice in the earth. In verse 6, he would be called by God to establish God's covenant with his people. And not just the Jews, but he would be a light for all the nations. In chapter 49, verse 1, God would give him a name while he was still in the womb of his mother. And then for a period of time, God would hide him away from public view. 
But when he came onto the scene, he would speak words that would cut like a sword. And his work, in spite of all of this, would appear to many to be in vain, but yet he would, to the very end, wait on God for his vindication. And through him, God would indeed cause his salvation to reach to the end of the earth. Chapter 49, verse 7, that through him, excuse me, that though he would be despised and abhorred by the nation, that is by Israel, yet the kings of the world would bow before him. In chapter 50, verse 4, the words that he would speak would sustain those who were weary and heavy laden. In verse 5, they would, um, he would, he himself, this servant, would be one who would really listen to God and not be rebellious against God. It goes on to say that he wouldn't turn back from what God had called him to do, that rather he would give his whole body to serve the Lord, give his back to those who strike his cheeks, to those who pull out the beard, hide not his face from disgrace or spitting. And this is Isaiah, 700 years earlier. He goes on to say, now in chapter 50, excuse me, um, all of this he would do in spite of the fact that he would face this opposition, that he would set his face to go and do uh, the work that God had given him to do, even in the face of suffering. All the while, chapter 50, verse 7, trusting in the Lord to vindicate him. And now we come to chapter 53. What would happen? Well, he would be rejected by his people, verse 3. Verse 4, they would consider that his sufferings were the punishment of God. Verse 5, they would pierce his body. Verse 7, he would be silent in the face of accusations, not opening his mouth to defend himself, to relieve himself of this great suffering and death. Verse 8, that he would die by the hand of wicked oppressors. Verse 9, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And verse 10, that even after death, he would live to see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, I want to ask you, how can you read these words and miss Jesus? There is a blindness over some people's eyes. I'm telling you, it is like a veil is just right. In, they cannot see what's right in front of them. Who is this person? I like the way one preacher said it. There's only one brow that can be uh, met with this crown of thorns. It only fits one person. This crown of thorns only fits one brow. And that is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. So many people are blind because they have an unwillingness to see what the Lord is showing them, revealing them, putting right in front of them. But praise God that when we turn to the Messiah in faith, the veil is lifted, right? And praise the Lord, it is. And it has been for so many people. And when the veil is lifted, it's just like, it's like all of these little pieces, right? Think of it like a puzzle. The whole Old Testament is like this puzzle. And, and when, when you see Christ, when you see Jesus Christ, the Lord, all the puzzle pieces snap together. And you begin to see the whole thing. And it is beautiful and stunning. My wife's grandmother 
His name is Sheila, was born into a, a Jewish family. They were originally from Russia and Latvia. The last name was Bukmos. And uh, they uh, eventually ended up in, in uh, she ended up in England. Uh, the, the family did. She said, my mother, growing up, my mother told me that the New Testament was a book of lies, and we don't read that book. And so she didn't. She just literally never read the New Testament. And that went on for many years. As she got older, she grew and fell in love with a, an army colonel. Well, she married an army colonel. And uh, they ended up uh, being stationed out in California, um, just south of San Francisco. And they were in a little neighborhood there. Um, and they had some neighbors who were believers. And those neighbors invited them to a Baptist church. And Sheila didn't know it, but these neighbors had been burdened for her. They'd been praying for her for almost nine months to the point where where they invited her to come to their church. And there was a, a special speaker, a visiting minister, who was actually a, a pastor and a Bible college professor. And he was there speaking, and he was also a Jewish man. And so the neighbors invited her to come and to hear this man. And she, uh, she said, I, I couldn't believe I was hearing that a Jewish man had become a Christian. And in fact, a Christian minister. She said, I never had heard of that in my entire life, that uh, a Jewish man could become a Christian minister. Who would have thought such a thing? And so she was intrigued and she came and she uh, listened to the service. And the man spoke about Jesus, the Messiah, being revealed in the ceremony of the Jewish Passover. And at the end of that service, um, Sheila uh, ended up um, being able to have a conversation with the man. And he asked, would you like to come back and, and uh, open the scriptures? And let me show you some, some things that I've come to see in our, in our scriptures. And she did. And, and, and so he opened the scriptures. And from the Old Testament, he began to show her from Isaiah from these other prophetic passages, he began to show her what God had revealed over and over all through these years to his people, and then turned her attention to the New Testament and began to flip through the Gospels and show her again and again and again and again and again and again how Jesus of Nazareth was the exact fit for what had been prophesied for all of those years in all of her scriptures that she claimed to, you know, to revere. And as he did so, I mean, her heart was opened by the grace of God. And he ended by turning to Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And he turned to her and he said, now, do you believe that? And she said, I do. And after that, she says she began to read the New Testament for the first time. And she just, she became a real student of God's word. And uh, she began to read the New Testament. And, and she said, quote, everything became clear. It was like the pieces of a puzzle fitting together. And that is exactly what it is. 
when you behold God's servant, all of the puzzle pieces just kind of begin to fit. I mean, Isaiah and Moses and David and prophets, Malachi and Matthew and Peter and Paul and John. I mean, the whole thing just all begins to fit into one perfect, cohesive story and revelation of God around one great central figure, the very figure that is right at the heart of this text. And everything becomes clear. And I just wonder if that's ever happened for you. When thinking about Jesus and about the claims of the Bible, and finally everything just kind of becomes clear, and you say, yes, this is true. I believe it. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the son of the living God. I believe if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But listen, if you reject this Savior, then what do you have left? No, really, think about that, would you, for a moment? If you reject this Savior, where else will you turn? Who else will pay for your sins? Or do you think that somehow sin will escape the justice of the Almighty God? If we reject this Savior, and the only thing that is left for us is what we've read earlier in this book, that you receive double for all your sins. The, remember that word? The exact double, the exact um, punishment that those sins rightly deserve, like something folded over on itself. You receive the exact retribution that your sins deserve. Here's one who took the retribution of God for the sins of his people. But if you reject that, you are left with only receiving that judgment on yourself. Who else would bear that sin for you? Praise the Lord Jesus that he was successful in bringing about our salvation. And he was. He was successful, though he was tested. He was tested to the very limits. And he proved to be faithful. He was tempted with the most subtle tools in Satan's arsenal. I mean, his temptations were far more subtle than any brick that Satan's ever hit you upside the head with. And yet he was wise enough to succeed in accomplishing the Lord's will. He was given the most difficult task in all of human history, laying down his life for his enemies. The enemy, not just, you know, your enemy and my enemy. We all probably deserve to have a few enemies, but the enemies of the holy and righteous God, and he was supposed to lay down his life for them, and he obeyed. And I remind you again that your eternal fate hung in the balance, life and death, heaven and hell hung in the balance in his test, but he succeeded, and because he succeeded, you can be saved. And I bid you now, right now, to come to the cross with the eye of faith and bow your head before him who is high and lifted up 
to see him with the eyes of faith, to hear his words, Father, forgive them. There he is, lifted up, put on public display to be disgraced and shamed. But he is robed in the richest robes of righteousness. He faithfully is accomplishing every minute, every second, every thought, every word, every motive. He is faithfully doing the will of God so that you might be saved. If he flinches, if he turns back, if he gives in, you and I have no hope. But Isaiah foresaw it long ago. He would be successful. That his people might be delivered. And there he is. Crucified and dying. And Satan is dancing with glee. That your only possible savior has been killed. But from that cross he is victorious. And he is successful. For the atonement and sacrifice for all who will believe what he has heard from us. May that be true. True for you. Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to admonish you now to confess and affirm your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Confess that now to your Heavenly Father. And if for some reason you're unable to confess that with a whole heart, I mean without reservations to say, I believe, Lord. You're unable to do that. I want to ask you to consider again the revelation of this person and ask you who else this fits. Who else will take your sin upon himself? Look to the Lamb of God. Look to the Savior. Look to the servant of Jehovah. Let's pray quietly.